This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth, and we are continuing our Bible study, the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 17, verse 8, and we're just going to see how long we go. So, <clears throat> as we've been discussing, one of the things that happens that we cannot avoid is at some time or another, the Israelites are, are going to go to war. They're, they're going to go to battle. They've escaped Egypt. Uh, you know, you can't go into, into land that people are already living in without having to fight for it. Like, that's just part of the deal. So this is where it gets confusing. So uh, I'm going to get on a soapbox for just a few minutes. Uh, one of the problems of the 19th and the 20th century is this idea of supersessionism. It's a, it's a, it's not a theory, it's a process in which what we do is, is we say, uh, if it looks Jewish, it sounds Jewish, we, we, we can make it Christian. Uh, we, we do it a lot. Um, the, the problem with it is, is like, <clears throat> there's this, let me give you an example. So like, if God says to the Israelites, you're, you're to go kill all the Amalekites. Uh, there's this idea that God tells people to kill one another. Right? So we say that. And we say, well, God told them you need to go kill them. Uh, but in, in Torah, their basic understanding of their faith, they, they're, they're not to start war unless God does that. Now, how does one determine if it's something that God has divine or human divine in the name of God. They, they struggle with it as much as we do. And so what happens is, is that you hear in the 19th and the 20th century, a new idea that has nothing to do with God. When we start talking about manifest destiny, we go to claim these lands in the name of the United States of America. Uh, and this is our property. Why? Because God gave us the ability to do so. And, and then we tie ourselves to the Jews in this moment. Um, it, it becomes a problem. I mean, it's a, it's a really big problem because that is not what's happening here in the book of Exodus. This is not God telling them to go conquer these lands in the name of Israel, right? They're saying, we're going to have to fight for what we are going to receive. This is different than let's go over to Puerto Rico and, yeah, and, and just take it for no reason. And take it for no reason. Like this, this is a problem. But we used God to do that. The United <laughs> States did. <clears throat> and this, this idea of the supersessionism, this is that you'll start seeing this a lot when you start. And I have to be careful how I say this because we've all been brought up in different ways. It's, it's like when we talk about the Hebrew Bible, uh, they're not thinking about Jesus. The Jews are not. The Israelites are not thinking about a Jesus in any way, shape, or form. They're struggling more with their own way of life than they're thinking about an ultimate Messiah. That's, that's the hardest part for us, because as Christians, <clears throat> we've claimed, we've named and claimed our Messiah as Jesus. But that's not what's happening here. And, and it's, They don't even hear about it. No. Even... Prophecies for hundreds of years, yeah. Right, and even even the prophecies that that they're talking about, like when we talk about like Isaiah specifically, yeah. right? Like Isaiah or Jeremiah, or even bits and pieces of Malachi, they're not thinking of just one, yeah. right? They're thinking that there's going to be multiple Mashiachs coming to help them because God's always provided. <laughs> so why would God stop providing Mashiachs for us? And so. This is hard for us because when we get to this part specifically, Moses and Aaron are lifting themselves, not lifting themselves. The writers are lifting Moses and Aaron as the, the diviners, for lack of a better phrase, of God. Uh, God talks to Moses. Moses talks to Aaron. Aaron talks to the people. And in this particular experience, all of a sudden you see Moses and Aaron acting in such a way that is in war, in battle, as if it's nothing. But they would have been, they would have grieved the loss of life. And it's very important that we say that out loud. So when we read battles, when we read any, any war that takes place, this would not have been taken lightly. It would not have been read like as in, oh, this just happened and it was okay because God said so. 
they would have grieved the loss of those that had died, as well as the ones that had given up their life for that moment, which is not something we normally talk about in Christianity. And Christianity, especially in the United States, there's this, this idea that God, God desires us to succeed as we are now the chosen nation. Which makes no sense as unchristian as we are nationally. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. This, this is a problem. I mean, like, I, and I, I just have to claim it out loud because when we hear people preach that from this passage or from these passages, that you should turn them off. You, sh <laughs> you should not listen to them anymore. God does not desire war. Um, war is inevitable because humans will fight as long as anybody owns land. Uh, but God does not desire those things. And to take passages out of the Hebrew Bible and say this is why, that's called supersessionism. And that's a, that's a big problem in the 19th and the 20th century for church, especially Christianity. And so <clears throat> I say this because here we are, we have, we have established, they are the chosen people of the time that, that who are writing this. And the very first thing they do is, is once they get out of Egypt and they've lived through the beautiful, fantastic miracles, is as they go to war <laughs> right off the bat. And then, then there's a moment of peace. But I just, I just have to say that before we, we go too far. Too and before far. we get started and we read this, yeah. I'm a little confused, I guess, because everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. We want it to. But it doesn't really until Isaiah and following. Right. So first five books of the Hebrew Bible okay were written in such a way that it's this is the way of our life torah this is the the word okay right so it's basically that would have been their bible that's what they would have used to worship mm -hmm. so when we look at this when when i'm teaching it, i'm looking at it from an anthropological lens they would not be looking at jesus like torah leading to jesus but in the 20th century in 19th century, we use the Hebrew Bible to say, here's, here's our moments, proof that Jesus was coming, right? The writers of the Hebrew Bible would not have thought that, historically. It's only Christians that put those dots together that figured that out over time. That's hard. That's hard. It's really hard to process because the writers of the Hebrew Bible had no, they were not thinking of a Jesus, Christians have figured out and have claimed that here's here's some here's some evidence that this could be that person that you're talking about. And that's hard for us when we look at it through that lens because the writers would not have thought that way. But as but the beautiful part is Karen, this is where switch flips. Even though they hadn't intended it to be that way, what happens is they wrote it down so that as time progresses, we can go back and read it and go, oh, that's what they were talking about. Or, ooh, look at the similarities to that story to this person. That's why they wrote it down. They might not have intended it to be that way, but that's what ended up happening. So it gets, it gets weird. And the, and the hardest part, especially in the 20th century, is, is that we want, we want it all to lead to Jesus. Well, in this story, it has nothing to do with Jesus, right? The first five books of the Hebrew Bible, nothing. The only thing that ties it to Jesus is he quotes it. He quotes the Torah throughout all of his ministry. What is it? Because he's a Jew. He's a rabbi. <laughs> That's I mean, what you quote. That's yeah. what you quote. Jesus quotes the Torah. He says, they're like, what's the greatest commandment? Well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, mind, and soul. And the second of those be to love your neighbor as yourself. That is directly from Leviticus. So he's a, he's a he's a phenomenal rabbi in that sense that he uses the Torah in the way that it was intended. Um, but the Torah was not proof that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. Um, that's that's hard. <laughs> that's that's the hardest part. It's kind of like putting Jesus on the back burner as we're reading these books. So yeah, that's see, that's that's the, the hardest part. Well, we can't I'm think of him being around. So we're reading things from people that are lost. 
Yeah, well, that's so, true. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, so, so why would so Jesus then becomes right? That's exactly right. This is the the whole thing if for Christians is like the better angle would be to say this is them lost in the wilderness the whole time that whole Hebrew Bible right, and then Jesus becomes for us the way, the truth, and the life. So that that makes total sense for us. So. It's important for as we read this to go, oh, yeah, this story isn't, this is not a Jesus thing. I remember being in seminary and in my, my very first Hebrew Bible class, Dr. Davison says to us, uh, just so that you know, they didn't know anything about Jesus or care about Jesus in any way, shape, or form about the Hebrew Bible at all. And I remember everybody in the room just kind of sucking the oxygen out of the air. <laughs> And because, you know, our whole life we've been brought up to believe that this prophet says this and this prophet says that. And she's like, no, because culturally there was never going to be just one for them. As, as Jews, there was never just one Mashiach. The Mashiach was important to them to bring them out of bondage, out of the wilderness, uh, like Moses and Aaron are going to be doing here a second. But then there's always going to be another one that God provided so for the Jewish culture, there was never supposed to be just one. And if it was going to be one, our Jesus does not look like that, right? Because the one that they described very clearly rides in on a white horse with a fiery sword, Conan the super Jew, going in and smiting all of the bad guys. And all of our enemies are dead and or dying. Uh, and, and so our Jesus, he does defeat the the enemies but he doesn't even lift a finger he does not smite anyone you know so there's there's so there's a and she said that i mean very clearly in our very first class and then we're just like okay so this is going to be a weird time and then so the seven semesters after that that i took all the hebrew bible classes i could take uh you could you could see it that the hebrew bible writers had no in intention of thinking of just a messiah but we can tie our Messiah to pieces of the Hebrew Bible. And it makes me feel comfortable. So that's, that's, that's a perfect example, Karen, of what we would call supersessionism. Like this whole thing was written about Jesus. No. And then there's pieces of it that we can tie to it. That's hard. Because the church taught us that. It's counterintuitive. Yes. Okay, so why would we want to follow somebody that doesn't know where they're going? Uh, the same reason that we, <laughs> just, we do that every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, and that's why we go to church. That's why community is so important. Because we're all lost. That's uh, that's where it gets, gets confusing. So yeah, this is great. You, you, you totally helped me with that description. Any other questions, comments? All right, let's begin. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, now we've, we've introduced him. Now Joshua in Hebrew, the word is Yeshua, which literally means, uh, we're at verse 8 and 9. Moses says to Joshua, now this is, this is one of those moments, Karen, this is why I'm making a big deal of it. Yeshua, over time, gets translated into Yehovah. Uh, which Yeshua means the way. Um, so Joshua is Yeshua in Hebrew, and over time it gets translated almost to the phrase Yehovah, right? Who is known as Yehovah? God, God. God. But in this case, in the Christian world, we, we, we place that in with Jesus, right? This is where the Jehovah Witnesses get their name. They are the witnesses of God through Jesus Christ. So here is this, this name, Yeshua. This is where you see churches today go, there it is, boom. Said to, no, totally different person. It has nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever here. But Yeshua in Hebrew comes almost all the way to the phrase of Jesus' actual physical name from Nazareth. So I, I point this out. Pick some men for us and go out and do battle with Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Je, jo, uh, jo, I'm sorry, it's hard for me not to say Yeshua. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur 
went up to the top of the hill. Then, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur, one on each side, supported his hands. Thus his hands remained steady until the sun set. And Joshua overwhelmed the people of Amalek. Uh, and his people with the with the sword right there. Then the Lord said to Moses, inscribe this in a document as a reminder. Ladies and gentlemen, there's your first proof that this is written by the Levitical priest. As a reminder, and read it out loud to Joshua, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it Adonai Nisi. Uh, and uh, he said it means hand upon the throne, kind of. It doesn't really mean that, but it's okay. Uh, the of the Lord, the Lord will be at war with Amalek throughout the ages. So now, boom, there's your proof that God is going to fight Amalekites uh, forever because they are they're enemies of God from here on out. So that means that when you look at any ancient map, any place that's in uh, Amal, these people are our enemies. So right off the bat, these Levitical priests are telling you, stay away from those people. They're bad. <clears throat> it's brilliant, brilliant writing technique. It, it's just not very comforting. Do they kind of still feel that way today? In in very area? much so. But, I mean, this is so it's still in. So it's it's still problems. Um, the the part that's hard right now is is because. They're using Exodus to claim land that people have been inhabiting for 2,000 years, yeah. um, specifically like this. And, and so um, this is this to me, this is a problem. This is uh, this even goes against their teachings. So. Um, so, yes, this is a problem. Yes, they still look at it. So if people are living in that place. They think was Emil. They'll, they'll put what's called a, a settlement there. And as long as uh, these people stay there for over a year, they can claim part of it as their property. And so the Israeli government has designed a process in which <clears throat> if we can prove that someone lives there and is a, a part of the nation of Israel, then we can claim it as our own land, even though there's thousands of people living around the apartment that this Israeli is living in. Uh, it, it, it causes, this is, this is the issue that you see. Now, please understand, this is government versus religion, right? The Israeli government is doing that, not the practicing Jews. What happens is, once the Israeli government has claimed this land that people are living in today, um, then they'll then they'll start moving more Jews into that place, or Israelis. Is, that's the way we should say that. Moving more Israelis into that, and eventually it just kind of expands. <clears throat> so it's kind of like the Indian river. They owned it five years ago. Build a casino on it. In, in theory, in, in very similar <laughs> fashion, uh, it's it's a little bit different <laughs> in, in the sense that our federal government decided that was a way of reparation, this is a way that the Israeli government is saying we are claiming it as manifest destiny. <laughs> so this is good. These are good conversations. So uh, the, the fascinating part for me is, is this idea that God claims this as his place. Uh, Moses, and Aaron, Moses gets tired. Uh, he, he holds his hands up and they win the battle and he starts getting tired. And as he's putting his hands down, he, they start losing. So Aaron and her hold his hands up until the battle has been won. Uh, love that story. Beautiful Midrash rabbi, rabbinical story right there. Uh, and then, of course, then there's the obvious insert from the Levitical priest. Oh, and we should write this down. <laughs> Notice that what they do, if we write it down, we write them out of history. Did you catch mm -hmm. that part? I know. And then it says the Lord will be at war with them forever. With them forever. And they've already been blotted out. So there's a little inconsistency. There's a there. major inconsistency there. But the cool part for me is, is that you can tie this to anthropology again. Oh, okay. How do you get rid of a culture? 
you just stop writing about them. <laughs> you stop. You stop talking about them. You erase their existence by destroying everything written about them. Uh, part of this, the destruction of the Alexandrian Library, was to to destroy cultures that no longer existed. So you know this. This is this is a, an anthropological lens to look at this and say, here's how the other cultures got rid of others. They stopped writing about them and then they don't exist. Um, I love that part. If I was doing this as an exegesis paper, I would probably say something to the effect of, this is historical criticism based off of how other parts of the culture uh, were already doing this. How to, you know, Israel exists today because the Torah survived. That's the truth. Uh, because other than that, there is no, there's bits and pieces of archaeological evidence that the Israel existed, but really the only thing that they have is the Torah and the Hebrew Bible. So it's the stories of long ago, because after they left Jerusalem, other people moved in, took over, took care, took care of the land, um, and it was centuries, if not millennia, later that they decided that we put them back there. So it's it's a it's a fascinating idea. So if I was doing a historical criticism, I would do it on just those three verses. So, all right. So now we got to go back to Jethro. So we have to remember. That the, that the Jews or the Israelites are not the only monotheistic people that believe in one God. Jethro obviously is. Zipporah obviously believes in a God. It's funny that Kim showed me this map today of the National Geographic thing from uh, uh, that they printed back in 1989. It's this great map. You guys can't see it really online, but but basically, National Geographic, the part that I loved about them historically is, is there was, you know, it was not an agenda of, of, uh, of writing. They just said, this is what's happening. So here in the, in the map, it says, one God, three faiths, Canaan, Hebron, Jericho, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Galilee. These were all claimed by those three faiths. Um, three faiths being Christianity, is Islam, and Judaism. We claim all of those areas, all three of those faiths. And for centuries they have. So here we got to talk about it because in the Torah, Jethro gets brought back up. He matters because he's Moshe's father-in-law. So here we go. Any questions before you get to that? Jethro, priest. Look, look how they've already risen him up. Priest of Midian. Moses' father-in-law heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel from Egypt. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah. This is the first time she's mentioned by name, right? Because we didn't have that before. Moses' wife, after she had been sent home, and her two sons. What? Of one whom was named Gershom. That is to say, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. That's literally what Gershom means. Um, then, and the other was named Eliezer, meaning the God of my father was my help, which literally means he was the God of my parent was my deliverer. It's the better phrase. And he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought Moses' sons and wife to him in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. And he each asked after the other's welfare, and they went into the tent. Moses then recounted to his father-in-law everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardships that had befallen them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the kindness that the Lord had shown Israel when he delivered them from Egypt. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro said, who delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Uh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord uh, is greater than all gods. Yes, by the result of their very schemes against the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering. Again, how did he know how to do that? 
and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to partake of the meal before God with Moses' father-in-law. So let's just pause right there. It's a lot of stuff going on. So before <clears throat> Moses even left Egypt, his wife and sons evidently left and went to her family. Evidently. He sent them away, or he didn't take them with him. I thought, and when I went to read this back again, we don't know what happens. All we know is, is that Moses shows up in Egypt. Remember, it was very abrupt. He, he gets married. He Jethro sends him. He goes home. He goes back to Egypt to get his people. Uh, it's very abrupt. So evidently, the, the writer said, we got to probably answer what happened. <laughs> um, and so it looks as though Moses had sent them away to be with her dad in case for safety. Because um, he's not Hebrew. And I guess it doesn't make any difference. It's just kind of... No, it's, it matters. <laughs> Did y'all catch the other part about how they refer to their sons? Her sons. Is that how it says in your Sally? Verse 3. Moses' sons in life. So it does not say her sons. In, in 5. In 3, it says her and her two sons. Her and her two sons. Okay. In five, it says Moses' sons and wife. Yeah, mine says Moses' son and wife to him. But the rest of the time that they refer to the sons, it's hers. They're hers. Would that go back to, well, she wasn't Jewish, though, was she? Hmm. Well, my Bible says his sons. Mm -hmm. So, I'm going to. I'm going to look this up. Because if she was Jewish, they would be, I mean, if you do the bloodline thing where the where you're Jewish through the mother, mm -hmm. then it would make sense. But if she's not Jewish, it's <laughs> hmm. a weird maybe that's why his sins don't become important in the story. story. But they name specific <laughs> geographical places. Yes. Well, Gershon, anyway, I hadn't heard of the other one. Yes, so these become the sons always matter because they're named after places, even though that they're they're feminine nouns because <laughs> towns are uh, um, named after women, hmm. like ships. Like ships. What was it? We were next to eighteen used to be. Yeah, her king used to be all women. I didn't remember that. Verse three. So it should be her sons. Uh, it's a noun, masculine, plural. No, it's a feminine singular. So it's a her sons, Banecha, Asher of whom the name of one was Gershom, which means masculine singular. For a stranger, he held in the foreign land I've been. So, uh, so this is this is this is not a big deal, but it is a big deal, right? Because there's an implication here in Hebrew to English that the writer is making sure you understand that the birth order matters from the mom. In the Greek to the English, which would have, that's where we lose something, but not necessarily lose it, that would have shown that that is a, a Roman-based culture. So if it says his sons, it would have been a Roman-based culture. If it says her sons, it's a Judeo-based culture. So in the Jewish translation, <clears throat> it's going to have her. If it's uh, Septuagint, it's going to have his. Okay. Does that make sense? Now you are all Bible scholars. That's, so, so this translation just did it both ways, so they couldn't couldn't claim anything. You still are you still using the NIV, right? Yes. Yeah. So the NIV does a brilliant thing most of the time. There's all, there's very very few problems with the NIV, but the NIV does this really cool thing where they try to try to match it even, both ways. Even everything. Else. They do. They're they're very good about doing this. Uh, but 
I got to go to verse five, just like to go straight to Hebrew. And see, it says the same thing. So the NIV does the same as probably NRSV is going to do, where they use both. But it's Ubanach, Ubana, which is and with his sons and his wife, where the wilderness of the was camping. So, so there's a there's a cultural thing that's taking place here. Um, the Levitical priests, in writing in Hebrew, the Masoretes would have made sure it said her. The Greek Septuagint would have put his because they're his sons. So it's not a problem. I'm just pointing out that is a neat, neat little, little thing. It's a kind of a cool deal. What else is neat? Jethro's kind of cool. Just again. Still don't know who he belongs to. Oh, I'm <laughs> <laughs> but he's a priest and he does a burnt offering. <laughs> who can do burnt offerings? Priests. <laughs> Only priests. So all of a sudden, they've incorporated Jethro as a high priest in the Levitical understanding, which only priests can give burnt offerings on behalf of people. That's kind of a big deal. Somebody might have preached a sermon about this last Sunday. <laughs> Sounds like a direct listen. It was okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a disclaimer. Yes. I don't like listening to my sermons afterwards, but um, after every Monday. Um, back when Moses fled to Midian, they called Jethro a priest there too. Uh-huh. I thought they did, but I couldn't remember for sure. Yep. And specifically of a land. Midian. Of Midian. Mm-hmm. So this go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, and one of the sons, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So is he talking about Midian being the foreign land, or is Egypt the foreign land? Or where they're at now? I'm going to say Egypt was the foreign land because Zipporah and her two sons are not in a foreign place. Uh, But obviously Jethro has this understanding that Moses, his people were not supposed to be there. Like that's not supposed to be where they are. Um, Did they take the home? Road signs or something, or well, because Joseph <laughs> Joseph takes them out of the land that Abraham had settled in, right? Mm-hmm. Joseph takes all of his brothers and uh, Jake, Jacob's family takes Jacob's family out of there, brings them to Egypt to take care of them. That's not their homeland, right? Okay. Now, the funny thing is, is as Sally would point out, it's four hundred years <laughs> that they were out of their land. So again, same problem that we're dealing with today: four hundred years out of the land that you left freely uh, is now going to be yours again. <laughs> Just, do you see the? Yeah, and all of those people conflict. coming in that have moved in there. Remember, this is a nomadic group. Yeah. Everyone out there is nomadic. It's nomadic. Yeah. Every single they person. They all that much. They just go where the water is, where they can plant food for just a little bit. But they still kind of stayed in, for lack of better terms, their territory, didn't they? Or, uh, sure. I meant, we're so, even nomadic without the wars and everything, wouldn't they have still kind of been in? Well, it's that's a huge anthropological question. And, and the answer, I, I will, I'm going to give it as quickly as I can. Basically, what we understand is, is that all of those tribes that travel, the Bedouins especially, right? They have specifically places that they go to travel to that have water, food, and shelter. And they rotate it. Um, the reason that they fight is this brothers fight against each other. And so this brother takes his family off this way and this brother takes his family off this way and then they would rotate opposite of each other. Right. right. So the goal was always to be away from the, this oasis and left time for the other one to get there. Now, if we're going to be really cool as we're traveling, we'll go, okay, we're going to go even further away because we keep running into this brother and fighting. Um, that's easy for me to say it that way. So then... What happens when you've got these two tribes that are moving around and around from each other, and then we add a third and a fourth tribe, right? That's what's happening. 
So uh, the Hebrew culture comes back, the Israelite culture comes back into the swing of the transition. And now what's happening is the idea is, is that we're saying, no, we're not going to travel to the next oasis. This is our oasis. And we will fight to the death protecting it. That's what we're seeing. That's not something that was culturally normal. So all those tribes traveled all the time. Because you, you have to. You want to give the land rest. If I use all the water from a well, I need to walk away, let the well refill itself. Right? I mean, it's it's not that crazy of a concept once you think about it in, in through the lens of a farmer. I'm not going to plant weed in one field forever and ever today. I'm going to have to put in some maize or something, uh, you know, in Milo. I have to put Milo in there at least once in a while, maybe some canola to give the land a little bit of rest, but I can't plant it there all the time. That's, that's the idea that we're having here from the Israelites. Uh, so when they go to take over the land from the Amalekites, it's, it's this weird, like, why? Why would you do that? Well, they're claiming land again. Jacob claimed land, his, his father before him, his father before him had claimed land. So now, now Moses is back. They're going to do the same thing again. It's because that's what they did. That's what makes them different than the other tribes. Did that make any sense? When you got 12 tribes of your own, you have to also remember that these books are only written about those 12 tribes. And there are other people in the world. There's a <laughs> lot of other people in the world. They were a very small tribe. Uh, Israel was a very small group of people compared to all the rest. So, when you stop and think how young the United States is, yes, ma'am. <laughs> compared to all these cultures that have gone on for thousands of years. Yeah, you know, how would we feel somebody coming in? To, oh, this is our land. You're seeing it right now. As a lover of history, everything we're seeing is exactly what happens in, uh, in an empire. Like yeah. everything that we're seeing right now, the, the battle, the, the, when you look at the way that we created our governmental system, you're seeing it fall apart in some senses and be girded in others. Why? Well, Why? because... This is the way society rolls. That's why I think anthropologists get thrown out the with the bathwater too much because they 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 keep saying they're the modern day prophets. Look, this is what happened to the Aztecs. You're doing exactly the same thing. No, ours is a little bit different. No, literally said the same words, did the exact same thing. No, ours is different. Okay, well, have fun. See ya. We're gonna go over here with the other country. You know. Uh, so you're, you're literally seeing it right now. Part of the struggle that Rome had at its, at its height as an anthropologist would be the, was the funding of their own empire. What killed them was not the fact that there were too many people. They ran out of tax money to continue to build the roads because they put all their money into building roads, not infrastructure. So when you're in Rome, they had running water, they had sewage, they had all of this stuff. Once you get out of Rome, there's nothing, just a road <laughs> that Rome paid for, right? So once all that's gone and nobody's giving you money because all of a sudden they figure out, huh, Rome can't really send 10,000 people to my little island anymore. I'm, I'm not going to send them any more tax money. What are they going to do? Pretty brilliant. And then Rome collapses in on top of itself because once you can't pay, you can't support your government, it's going to fall. And you start all over again. And that's where we are. That's exactly where we are. <laughs> and I and on another day, I would give you the, uh, the the change of religious movements anthropologically that happens every 500 years. <laughs> and uh, just a snippet of that in 1517, I had the date wrong on Sunday. 1517 is this when Martin Luther puts the 95 theses on the wall uh, of the building at Wittenberg Chapel. Uh, and we are now in 2021, literally 500 years after that, the thousand, 500 years before Martin Luther doing that, we were in a crusade. You see, 
500 years before the Crusades, mm -hmm. the church had established itself as the holy and Ro holy, holy universal Roman Empire, Roman em Empire in Which the name of God. they thought was the whole world. It's right. In the year 500, you see, so every 500 years, you see a massive shift in, in Christianity. And guess where we are? <laughs> in the midst of a pandemic, having to reshift the way that we think how we do Christianity. So back to the, the Bible study. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> This is proof of that. There's, there's a, a religious thing that takes place. Uh, there's all of these things that somehow people already know. So now we have to establish a government. Crazy concept. We've had burnt offerings. We're going to establish a government. Let's read verses 13 through 27, shall we? Because this is going to be fun. <laughs> the next day, Moses sat as magistrate among the people, while the people stood about Moses. Does yours say judge? Judge. Yep. Uh, stood about as a judge. Moses took his seat. Took his seat. What version do you have? I'm just curious. I am too. New Living Translation. Yep. Still good. Anyway, so the magistrate, or judge, or taking his seat, among the people, while the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. But when Moses' father-in-law saw how much he had to do for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing to the people? Why do you act? Um, this is where that word sit comes from. This in Hebrew would be sitting there. So that's why that translation works. Why do you sit as magistrates? Who sits? Rulers. You see? Because the people are standing. That's right, because everybody is standing or kneeling to the person that's ruling. So they're and they're seated. So Jethro asks this question: why do you sit or act alone? Why all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law: It is because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes before me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known the laws and teachings of God which we have not established yet. But <laughs> We're two chapters away yet. Two chapters away yet, but he is still doing it. But Moses' father-in-law said to him, this is, this is brilliant, by the way, beautiful, smart way to answer this question. The thing you are doing is not right. You surely will wear yourself out. And these people as well, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You represent the people before God, and you bring the disputes before God and enjoin them upon the laws and teachings and make them known to the way they are to go and the practices they are to follow. You shall also seek out from among all the people capable men who fear God, trustworthy men who spurn gotten gain. Set these over them as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all time, having them bring every major dispute to you, but let them decide every minor dispute amongst themselves. Make it easier for yourself by letting them share the burden with you. If you do this, and God so commands you, you will be able to bear up, and all these people too will go home unwearied. Moses heeded his father-in-law and did just as he had said. Moses chose capable men uh, out of all of Israel and appointed them over the heads of the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times and the difficult matters they would bring to Moses and all the minor matters they would decide amongst themselves. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went on his way to his own home. Now, I have so much I want to say, but I want to hear what you have to say first. I didn't ever remember this Bible story. Oh, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> we don't teach it in Sunday school. Maybe in your class. But... Um, maybe. I remembered it because I thought that was so neat. This guy's not only a priest and um, a Midianite, whatever that means. Yeah. But he's brilliant. <laughs> Right? From the outside. <laughs> and Moses in. listens to him. And Moses listens to him. That's so simple. That's <coughs> hmm? so simple. It's so easy. Yeah. Sort it out. Sort it out. 
I was reading a book one time and it, somebody told somebody what to do and that would be better and they did it and they said this is a good example of one example of, of someone's taking advice and here's another one yeah and it's good advice yeah it's good advice does it look uh hebrew <coughs> i don't know they have priests and then they have levites but i don't know about officials of over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. We had one period of their culture <coughs> that we know they had judges. Oh, and that's they, right. And they named them. They had the, judges. They had a judge. They had judges. And they named the book Judges to talk about them. And sometimes they were prophets. And sometimes they were prophets. But they didn't have prophets till later. Right. So we had judges, we had prophets. Anybody else have anything else to say about it? Because I'm getting ready to go off. Go off. <laughs> okay. This kind of goes back to the beginning of our discussion. At the very beginning of our discussion, I said, we have to be careful about how this ties us to Jesus, right? This really needs to be about the Israelites tying themselves to the world. That's what I should have said. But I didn't on purpose. The, this, is, this is showing how one culture can learn something from another in a peaceful manner, and it affects them in a positive way. The Israelite culture had figured out long before most of the others that we both have something we can offer to the table. So that's why Torah is such a big deal. When you think Torah is about hospitality, right? Feeding the stranger taking care of those that are sick and imprisoned. That, that idea, that's, that's what makes them different. But they figured out that if they could use some of the stuff that they learned along the way, it would help. That's where Jethro comes in. Jethro is a Midianite, who obviously is a monotheist, that believes in a God, maybe not the same one we call it, but believes in a God. And, and he worships in the same way that we do. And he, they lift him up as a priest. And then he gives them a system of government that makes sense. And they don't fight it. But notice what Jethro does to make it solidified. Says as, God commands. as God commands. If it's not something that God wants, it won't work. That's a huge warning to anyone reading this. That's that's a problem. Not, not a good thing. Not, not like you can't fix it, but like it's a problem in the sense of, oh, what do we do here, right? Like how how do we handle this? Well, what are the other people doing? How are they making it work? This is proof that they're paying attention to the other cultures, and if it, if God doesn't want it, it's not going to happen. So yeah, I, I agree with Sally. This is this is a cool passage in the sense that here's here's a perfect example of a stranger amongst in their midst that gives them advice and they take it and God deems it good. That doesn't happen very often, especially in the human body. And then he goes on his way. Thank you very much for your time. You've changed our entire culture. God bless you. <laughs> you can go back. You can go back home now. Um, notice that he's created um, a Supreme Court, uh, <laughs> a magistrate. He's created a district court and a, uh, a regional court. You know, so you've got a federal, a state, a district, and a municipal court all at the same time. So. I like it that he says that um, God, you know, God's as long as God blesses it, but He also, to me, it's in reiterating that you have to take it to God. Ah, yes, I mean, you know, you just can't do it on your own. God said this, it's you really you need to pray about it, you need to take it to God. Interesting that Seek this follows a Seek His wisdom. Seek His wisdom. And like I said, interestingly, that it follows after a battle. 
So here's this battle that takes place. Did we see why they, they were fighting? The mine says the Amalekites attacked them. Yeah, I see. Amalek came and fought with Israel. Just out of nowhere. <laughs> because they were in their in their route. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So then here, here's your moment. Here's, there's, these, there's this battle that takes place, and then here's Jethro going, okay, Moses, you can't do all of this. You can't do everything. You're not, you're not God. You, uh, you need to stop acting like God. Um, and then here's that. And it makes sense that it follows directly after that. <laughs> now, we're going to have to stop here. It's kind of like church board. It's exactly I mean, it's like, like church. a church. It's like any any club or whatever. Yeah, you know, you got your president. Yeah, you can't do it all. No, this is this is, <laughs> this is this is where they just make one. <laughs> this is this is where they start to get the idea that the the Sanhedrin. This is this is when oh. it starts to get this idea that. We have to have people that are able to take care of the legal aspects of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, if they're not following the 613 social laws, because there's punishment that goes along with that, there's because they rule, they govern themselves under those laws, right? So if they if they have to have judges, but then the problem with that because is you can't have judges that are just are, are, and can also be prophets and a priest. It just doesn't work. You can't have the person that just judged your family also take your burnt offering and think it's okay. <laughs> right? Even if you're innocent, it becomes a problem. So this is where the Sanhedrin eventually comes from because they figure out, oh, the judges can't do everything. The priests can't do everything. The scribes obviously are basically worthless, but they're writing our history, so we better be nice to them, which is why the scribes insert themselves throughout the entire Bible. Just saying. <laughs> Because um, they're writing it. Because they're writing it. What are you going to do? You're going to tell them, no, you can't even read it, but they're writing. So um, so we're going to stop there because what happens is, oh my gosh, that's funny. It's, it gets really cool. We get the introduction of what's called a, a theophany, and we start talking about covenant, and we start talking about, uh, what's the other part? Um, the we're getting closer to the Ten Commandments. Like, so all of a sudden we're, we're getting to a place where now the culture is forming, but they've started from war and battle. And really what's happening is, is we're talking, what do we do in the, when we're not in battle? How do we govern ourselves, right? Because we have generals that let, lead us through those things. How do we do that with humans? It's cool. With that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording. We will begin on... Genesis chapter 19 next week.